This is episode 34 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. episode 34 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we sit down with Professor Jenny Martin of the Program of Liberal Studies and the Department of Theology. We talk about her teaching across the disciplines, about the differences in teaching first-year students and seniors, and about how cultivating a sacramental imagination is necessary to transforming a pornography-obsessed culture. Let's sit down for this week's conversation. Well, Jenny Martin, thank you very much for coming to be with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. So tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us about how you came to Notre Dame. Sure. Well, I... um, I came to Notre Dame in 2005, actually, as a graduate student. I worked on a Master of Theological Studies in the History of Christianity in uh, 2005 to 2007, and then I switched to Systematic Theology for a Ph.D., so I did my graduate work in theology here as well, Um, and then I finished my dissertation in the summer of 2012 and got hired in the Program of Liberal Studies, which is the Great Books Department Mm -hmm. here at the university uh, in 2012, that same year. So um, I was interested always in theology. My father was actually a Protestant minister, which, you know, if you told me 30 years ago that I would have been um, teaching Catholic theology at Notre Dame, it would have come to to be a great surprise to me. But yeah, so um, so I came to study theology in the theology department here and then moved over to the PLS department. Awesome. So you are in PLS, Program of Liberal Studies. You have a concurrent appointment in the Department of Theology. Um, what do you teach? And, uh, and not only what do you teach, but how does that relate to your kind of professional um, intellectual interests? Oh, great, thanks. Um, so in PLS, uh, the backbone of the curriculum are six great books seminars. So um, great books one starts with Homer and we end great books seminar six with um, a turn to the civil rights movement, uh, the modern novel. So we go up to about um, the 1960s um, and uh, all of the faculty in the department teach the seminars. So um, I spend a lot of time reading actually outside my discipline. Um, I'm teaching right now um, a literature university seminar for non-majors where we're reading Homer and Aeschylus and Euripides and Aristophanes and all of the sort of Greek ancient uh, tragedies and some of the histories and epics, as well as some of the Platonic dialogues. Um, So I'm teaching that right now, but a few semesters ago I was teaching Kant and Wittgenstein and Virginia (laughs) Woolf, you know, so it's it's a real... um, You're teaching a a lot outside your discipline. Um, Inside my discipline, uh, we have 13 tutorials that are connected to the curriculum in a lot of different disciplinary areas. So we have um, two requirements in theology, several in philosophy, some in fine arts. So I teach both of the theology tutorials, which are more lecture-driven, more content-driven, and those are taught by someone with um, in the area of expertise. Yeah. So the first one I teach is for generally freshmen and sophomores. It's a class called The Bible and Its Interpretation. And the second course I teach in the theology sequence is uh, Christian Theological Tradition for seniors. Uh, with respect to the first course, uh, 
I try to make it both sophisticated and um, fun. Uh, we end up uh, looking at uh, not only the biblical texts, but also um, the history of biblical interpretation, not only in you know Jewish interpretation, uh, patristic interpretation, but also in homilies, in movies, in popular culture, yeah. and um, in art, and those kinds of things. So a big component of that course is um, a creative project that is done in accordance with an exegetical paper where they pick a passage and then they create really whatever they want. Um, I've had a lot of really interesting final projects come out of that Bible course, Um, oil paintings and short stories and poems. Um, There was a... um, Choreographed dance one time. Wow. Uh, yeah, and was it have, Salome? Was it, it was not. It was uh, from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor oh, Dream sure, Coat, of sure. course. Right. Um, so uh, we we go to the Snight Museum a lot and um, spend some of our class time thinking about how image and text uh, are combined and uh, how different images can pick up on different threads of the biblical text or different versions of the biblical text. Right? If you've got, uh, there's a few pieces over in the Snipe Museum on the banishing of Hagar by mm. Abraham. And um, after we read that section of the uh, Hebrew Bible, we go over to the museum and we look at several of these. Uh, there's a Rembrandt that's there in their archives or their storage. And there's also some pieces that are on permanent display. And we look at those and talk about how the artists have picked up on different picked up or innovated completely uh, absent elements of the biblical text. Uh So that's very interesting. And the students, I think, seem to really enjoy that course. Um, The other course is um, the Christian theological tradition or Christian theological traditions, um, which is for seniors. And uh, that course is probably more near to my own research interests. I write a lot on the nature of Catholic tradition, the operation of Catholic tradition. I think a lot about... um, what it means to retrieve the past, what it means to um, to think about the past, and what conservation of the past looks like in the present and with an eye toward the future. So those those kinds of like meta questions that I'm interested in in my own research uh, come out pretty closely in that in that course. Uh, we read Eve Kungar's "The Meaning of Tradition," where he um, he's giving a very dense account. A sort of meta account of what Catholic tradition is and how it how it operates. Um, because when we talk about tradition, sometimes students think, oh, it's traditional. It means it's dusty. It's old. We have to sort of drag it from cold storage and mm-hmm. bring it into the present. Um, but I try to show in that class that um, that tradition is durable. And it's, um, it's actually a, a category of not only the past, but also the future. So in order to sort of demonstrate that, um, Concretely, I've arranged a syllabus where I have patristic interlocutors connected with modern interlocutors. So I've arranged it thematically according to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, We follow um, the Apostles' Creed, and so we move through – we take a long time actually with the first word, credo. What does it mean to believe something? What does it mean to believe in a culture in which religious belief is is often not valued? What does it mean to believe – in a culture where empiricism and scientism and all these kinds of uh, isms, uh, where everything is sort of reduced down to its empirical provability. What does it mean to believe something invisible, to believe something beautiful, to believe something old? You know, all of those kinds of things. We spend several several weeks on that, and then we move through the more dogmatic elements, uh, the doctrine of God as Trinity, Christology, pneumatology, ecclesiology. And I pair 
kind of patristic readings with modern readings. Uh, one example of that is uh, in the pneumatology section, we read a lot of biblical texts on the Holy Spirit. We read some of Eve Kungar's book, I Believe in the Holy Spirit, and we read a book by a modern theologian, Shelley Rambo, about um, trauma theory and what it, does it mean to go through a trauma. So what she does in this book is um, she connects this with a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, a sort of notion of abiding, um, of waiting in a kind of middle space between Good Friday and Easter. You know, it's it's really sort of a beautiful thing. And the students respond well to that. Um, I also add, sort of selfishly, um, Charles Peggy's poem, uh, The Portal of the Mystery of Hope, at the end of every version, every iteration of that course since I've taught it starting in 2012. Uh, because what that text does... Um, it's a kind of poetic representation of what tradition is. Uh, it repeats these images without losing any of them. Um, and it has this really beautiful image of um, tradition is very concretely practiced. Um, dipping our hands into the holy water, crossing ourselves from hand to hand, he says, from fingertip to fingertip, eternal generation to eternal generation, all the ones going to mass. You know, it's a really beautiful, um, beautiful image of tradition that's very much liturgical and concrete and having to do with ordinary Christian practice, which I think is really beautiful. I hear from my students that a lot of parents get that book for Christmas every year. So <laughs> anyway, so um, so I think that that is a, is a good summary of um, the kinds of things I teach. Yeah. I can speak a bit more about how it connects to my own intellectual interests, but I've s- spoken to that a bit. Yeah. Well, so you teach a class for freshmen, you know, kind of first uh, first years, and then a class for seniors. Do you see growth? Yes, very much. Um, Which is a good thing. Yes, of course. Yeah, uh, I do. Um, I think the question, the theological questions get more sophisticated. Um, But I have a soft spot for the for the freshman version because, uh, well, I have to do. Sometimes I have to do a bit of um, dismantling of preconceptions in the freshman course, the freshman and sophomore course, especially actually students who have gone through Catholic schools their whole life, and they, um, they've they somehow gotten the, they're under the misapprehension that the Bible is, can be reducible to to sort of one meaning or to like an immediate application. And so part of the challenge and the joy of that class is to sort of indicate through a lot of different ways, kind of explicitly, but implicitly through all these juxtaposing all these different ways of reading that the Bible is really a very sophisticated document that does more literarily and um, spiritually and liturgically than it is just to give us the do's and the don'ts, you know. Mm So there's sometimes a reductive picture of the Bible or um, students sometimes either under or overestimate their familiarity with the Bible. Um, And it's interesting, especially in my pedagogical context, to teach the senior level course on tradition, because if we think our entire curriculum in PLS is integrated, and so everyone, by the time they come to me, have uh, they've all taken the same classes in roughly the same order. They've all read the same books. So I get them the semester that they're reading or the semester after they've read uh, Marx and Darwin and Hegel and Nietzsche and all of the sort of um, masters of suspicion, right? Mm-hmm. And so I get them after this uh, kind of crash course in skepticism and um, and then have to 
think about how I'm teaching a senior level theology course to students who may be in different places with their own faith life. Um, they they need to see a kind of uh, rationale for theology as an academic discipline with credibility, um, theology as a science in the way that Aquinas talks about that in the Summa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and so I have, I learned in the course of my years teaching in the program that I have to start off with some kind of um, awareness of what they've been reading in their other classes and to indicate that they the way that what's valued as truth, what's valued as real um, in the modern world, we don't think that because it's the obvious answer. We think that because we are the inheritors of a long intellectual tradition where meaning gradually gets foreclosed from the sort of invisible divine as like in, in ancient Greece, for instance, um, through, you know, the, uh, through the Enlightenment and those other kinds of um, critiques of knowledge and how we can know things, uh, Descartes and Kant and other figures like that. Um, so I have to sort of make a case for seeing the invisible and entrusting oneself to meaning that can't be demonstrated mm-hmm. in a lab. Um, non-scientific. And non-scientific, right? Yeah. And so part of the way that I do that is um, I use uh, Colonel Ratzinger's book, Introduction to Christianity, which um, the students always tell me that's, uh, that's sort of the sleeper hit of the, of the class. Everyone thinks it's, mm-hmm. uh, it sounds very, um, very cut and dry and very dull, but it's actually um, Ratzinger gets – people in that book. He understands, um, and you know, the fact that that this book was written as a series of lectures given to college students at the University of Tübingen in the 1960s, that comes through because he knows his audience and he knows exactly the kinds of things that early college students are thinking about. Um, That he starts a book called Introduction to Christianity with a story about... um, about doubt of, of a he, he retells the story of a Kierkegaard's clown uh, where he's um, dressed up as a, as a clown he goes into the village he says oh the village is burning the village is burning um, and uh, no one believes him because he's wearing a, a clown outfit mm-hmm. and uh, Ratzinger says this is precisely the position of the theologian in the modern world right it seems like a very uh, destabilizing way to begin a book about Christianity as a cardinal and mm-hmm. then a pope um, but uh, the students they're disarmed and they're charmed by that book. Um, and I think that helps to show them uh, the sort of respectability of the theological discourse because Ratzinger is so careful to do that. Yeah. We actually use that in an RCIA oh, class you? that I did last year with with two um, two professors wow. who were who were entering the church and they chose this book. Really? It, it's not a book that we would have normally used for RCIA. No, no, that it, seems like an outlier. Yeah. yeah um, but it was superb and it was the first time I'd read it. And Isn't I it was beautiful? like, how did I miss this? I know. I know. I think his chapter on the Trinity is also one of the best um, kind of articulations of Trinitarian thought uh, there is. I mean, he, he manages to cut through all of the very speculative, important speculative um, mm-hmm. conversation about what the Trinity is and gets to the real heart of it, which is love. Uh, right. it's sort of, he's an Augustinian at heart. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Well, now, Jenny, you're a member of the DeNicola Center's Faculty Advisory Committee. Um, How did you originally get involved with the DCEC, and what are some of your ongoing involvements with uh, the center, and and especially with our student fellows? Sure. Um, Well, Carter Sneed reached out to me back in the spring of 2017, I believe it was, uh, with an invitation to come have a conversation with him about um, some of our overlapping interests and, um, and the interests of the center. And uh, we just really hit it off and had a great conversation. And at the end of that conversation, he asked me to be a faculty affiliate for the center, which I happily accepted. And um, since then, uh, I've been most heavily involved probably with um, as a regular host for the salon series, Soren Fellows Dinners. I've had students um, over to my house for dinner uh, two or three times um, to talk about various texts. Um, a C.S. Lewis text, The Weight of Glory, and uh, we also read some pieces from Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the, t- in the year that uh, the, the center was doing uh, a lot of events on that. Um, and I'm also slated to be the fall 2019 Bread of Life speaker uh, in November, which I'm really looking forward to that and having a conversation with the students in that capacity. Um, They also, um, when I first got involved, very generously helped to fund a trip to Rome where I got to go to Rome and um, and meet the Pope, met Pope Francis. And uh, this was in combination with my husband's work in the Institute for Church Life uh, where they received a prize for their work in science and religion. And um, so we got to go and have dinner at the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences. And uh, it was the CEC helped me to go and to do some independent research um, on Hansers von Balthasar, which I work on, I got to go to um, to a formation house there in Rome that is uh, headed up by Father Jacques Survey. Um, Casa Balthasar is the name of it, and I got to spend some time with him and, and work in their library for a bit too. And the center uh, helped to fund that, which I'm very grateful for. Wonderful. Well, now you've spoken and written um, various things over the years. Your your CV is actually pretty extensive, but um, the concept of cultivating a sacramental imagination in an age of pornography was uh, the title of one of your talks. Um, Unpack that for us, because I think there could be no more timely topic. Sure, absolutely. Yes, um, I was invited by um, Elizabeth Grappi, who is a professor of systematic theology at the University of Dayton, back in, um, I think, the spring of 2015, to give a talk at St. Mary's on, um, well, she asked me to give a talk on beauty and the potential sort of healing qualities of beauty in an age of pornography. And so at the the task itself seemed very difficult. The, uh, the, the entire conference was based on kind of more sort of on the ground work that people were doing on the um, ill effects of pornography on um, the brain and on the sort of addictive qualities of it and the um, obviously the damage that it does to uh, both the viewer and the participant. Um, and so I was, I was compelled by the problem um, and the way that I approached it was I stepped away from kind of the, the sort of nitty-gritty difficulties of the concrete um, problem of pornography, which I think is actually a problem of public health <laughs> that needs to be uh, dealt with. And I think it's connected to um, – well, it's it's connected to, I think, a lot of the sexual misconduct that's been coming out both sort of in Hollywood and in um, sort of broader culture – so I I took a more conceptual look at this issue 
um, Elizabeth had asked me to think about um, beauty as a way of countering some of the harmful effects of pornography. So what I did is I, I was thinking about what, what pornography is, is a subset of a way, a reductive way of thinking about the world and thinking about anthropology. Um, it's not only reductive, it's also highly susceptible to commodification and exploitation. Um, and it decouples beauty from depth in certain ways. Um, Baltazar, uh, the Catholic figure that I work on, talks a lot about uh, perception. And um, he has this uh, this phrase about um, if you see... I, I can't remember the exact phrase, but he's talking. he talks about what he calls inhuman seeing, where he thinks about if you look and you just see the appearance, um, you're, you're doing violence to the kind of like ontological depth of beauty, um, the inherent dignity of persons, all those things. So, um, so I use this idea of inhuman seeing from Baltazar as a – it's a kind of like conceptual act of violence that precedes actual acts of violence. Um, and so I, I talk about that and I, I recommend – a way of refiguring the human imagination, the cultural imagination, the theological imagination, first by uh, reconnecting beauty to ontology, beauty to being, beauty to depth. It's not merely appearance. It's not really surface. Um, and that, I think, natively resists a kind of profit-driven commodification of the machine that drives pornography. It's money, right? It's money at the end of the day. Um, and then I talk a lot about um, Baltazar's more biblical anthropology where you have the connection of um, embodiment and materiality and spirituality um, where he connects the the senses with the spiritual senses. I mean, so it's a very sort of whole-bodied idea of um, what it is to be a human person. And it's also a very relational quality, uh, relational aspect of, of anthropology. So... Um, you know, I, th I think at the end of the day, it's not nearly enough to talk about it in conceptual terms like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I mean, it's a, it's not a sufficient condition, but it's a necessary one to start thinking about what, how we value beauty, how we value um, sort of the exhibition value of, of beauty and how we look at people and how we look at the world. Um, I mean, to me, and not just to me, but um, the sacramental imagination has no competitors, right? It's to see the world as imbued with grace and meaning and to see everybody as um, worthy of dignity and respect and um, care. And, um, and it, it just are there concrete ways that we can sort of recover that way of seeing the world um, where things have been so reduced to sort of being reflected, you know, images reflected in the media or reduced to what can make money, you know, those kinds of things. So, um, you know, it, it's a it's a very difficult issue um, that I feel ill-equipped to deal with all the way down. But, you know, in, in terms of like just thinking about how we see other people and how we see the world and how we understand what beauty is, there's, you know, a limited kind of antidotal quality to that that I think is important 
even if it's not fully sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what are you working on now? I happen to know that you'll be speaking at the Catholic Imagination Conference yes. uh, in Chicago, I hosted am. by, uh, which the center is, is a co-sponsor of. So, Wonderful. Uh, so I'll be there to yes. hear you. Yes. Oh, lovely. But uh, what, what are you working on? Sure. Um, well, the, um, the particular work that I'm doing for that conference, which I'm very excited to be part of, I mean, it's, uh, it's a wonderful collection of novelists and musicians and poets and theologians all kind of coming together uh, to, um, to talk about the future of the Catholic literary imagination and talk about art. Um, so what I'm doing for that is um, I'll be on a panel with Irish poet John Dean, and we're talking about the aesthetics of faith and doubt. That is our task. So um, my own presentation will deal actually with um, various receptions of this very well-known painting, the Hans Holbein painting, um, Christ Dead in the Tomb, uh, where it's a very stark, very visceral kind of depiction of the death of Christ. So this is the one, of course, people know that um, Dostoevsky describes in the, uh, has Prince Mishkin say, I think, um, you know, someone can lose their faith looking at that. And uh, Baltazar who uh, the theologian that I work on saw that painting quite a bit. Um, it's in Basel, uh, where he's from, and he um, he was very interested in that, and he's written a lot about the painting as well. Um, but the I'm also supplementing the sort of literary and theological kind of engagement with that painting with um, Julia Kristeva, who was a very you know, she's interested in religion, but she's not religious at all. She's a, a sort of so-called French feminist who's working in the psychoanalytic tradition. And she's also written about that painting in ways that I find very compelling. Um, so thinking about her notion of what she calls abjection, um, where subjects get kind of excluded and put outside the mainstream, um, she connects that with, with this painting. And she talks about it also in... Um, in a book on melancholia and depression, so I'm mm. I'm kind of I'm kind of interested in seeing how this non-religious figure reads this painting in connection with um, a Swiss Catholic and um, a Russian novelist. Right? I mean, it's very yeah. interesting to see the different responses. Um, my main project, though, is a new book project called, um, well, tentatively called "Recollecting Forwardly: A Poetics of Tradition," and in that book, I'm considering some of the understudied poetic and philosophical forebears of the Catholic Ressourcement movement. Um, I've mentioned in the talk already, um, Charles Peggy, the poet, uh, and uh, I'm also working on uh, Henri Bergson, who's uh, mm-hmm. you know, the philosopher and uh, phenomenologist who um, was 1859 to 1941, but uh, a lot of these thinkers were reading Bergson. So I'm really thinking about, I mean, uh, broadly speaking, using these figures and themes and text to illuminate sort of meta questions about tradition, about time. How does time operate? How does repetition operate? How can we conserve something without making it, uh, without killing its vitality? You know, how can we bring it into the present? Um, One of the other things I'm interested in in that book is um, how the language of uh, metaphor or poesis are seem to me to be intimately connected with the way that we talk about Catholic tradition, right? I mean, we have a lot of metaphors for how it works. You know, Paul Claudel talks about it as um, 
you know, like a man walking. You have to have one foot on the ground and one foot lifted. So you're you're moving, but you're also grounded. Um, Baltazar talks about it as um, as like the flame in the Olympics that's passed from one to another. And the thing about a flame is um, it's living, it's dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's also in certain ways vulnerable and fragile. Um, and so so how is it? How do, why, what do these metaphors do for us when we're thinking about uh, how tradition operates? I mean, if tradition is a category that's more than just the texts and dogmas uh, that are written down, right? If tradition also, I mean, in the most um, sort of metaphysical sense, most theological sense, is like Eve Congar talks about um, the original tradition, traditio, or handing on, is the father's handing on of God's self to the son, right? I mean, so it's a Trinitarian mm-hmm. grounding of tradition. So what does it mean for the way we think about Catholic tradition that it's in this Trinitarian envelope of being as such, right? I mean, it's a very kind of interesting question to me. Um, and to think about, you know, what's up for revision? What's not up for revision? Um, how can we, as concrete participants in the Catholic Church, be part of this dynamic conversation and be part of this handing on um, that is a reflection of, of sort of Trinitarian life. Yeah. So uh, so that's, that's the newest book project. And um, I'll be on leave in the spring so I can spend some time working on that. I'm glad we got you now then. Yeah, great. (laughs) Me too. Well, Jenny Martin, thank you very much for taking time to be with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you to Professor Jenny Martin. You will find links to her books and essays and to the poetry of Charles Pegui in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is, I don't know, by Grapes licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Music